You're listening to Mukasahaba Online Radio Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. It's Friday night and it's time for Current Affairs with me, your host, Alameen Templeton. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa salatu wa salamu alayhi rasulillah. Praise and honor is due to Almighty Allah, the creator, the sustainer, and the destroyer of the world, the one who will hold us to account on the day of Qiyamah. The one who wakes us up in the morning, the one who gives us uh, every single breath, every single thought throughout the day. The one who owns all time. We like to pretend we have my time and we have our last time. But no, 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 my friend. It's all a last time. It doesn't matter. You can pretend as much as you like, but I'm afraid, you know, these seconds that you spend pretending that this is your time, you're probably going to regret them in the next world. And the next world is the one that lasts forever. So choose where you're going to make your investment. Always a, v- a very good thing to make that choice early on a Friday night as well, may I just add. Mm. Yes, well, uh, we've got plenty to talk about in the show tonight. There's Palestinian unity talks uh, on the go in Moscow. Three days of talks that started yesterday. Due to end tomorrow or perhaps the day after, depending on how they go, it seems like um, Russia has, hasn't so much inked in as penciled in um, <clears throat> the final date for those talks. So hopefully good things are going to be coming out of there. Yesterday I spoke about the Irish link uh, to the Palestinian struggle. No, no doubt many listeners would have noticed over the last few months in particular how the Irish have come out batting for the Ghazans. Hmm? Really, you know, as a half-Irishman, uh, it, really, um, it really warms the cockles of my heart, I suppose you could say. Um, so we'll be having a look at what is it? What is it about the Irish that makes them like so alive and alert to what is going on in Gaza? Oh, may Allah Ta'ala bless that tiny, small little island with his diet. Wouldn't it be fantastic? Hmm? 800 years of battling between the Catholics and the Protestants there. All of a sudden, the troubles are over and they're all Muslim. <laughs> then they can really focus on the British, you know. Yeah, 800 years of oppression and they're still there. And then we'll be having a look at the humanitarian aid to is dropped by half in February. That's according to UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Welfare Agency, that Israel is so desperate, as well as uh, all European countries and America, are desperate to shut down because they're the ones who are managing to get that little drip of feed coming through to the Palestinians. They want, they, they want UNRWA to be replaced by the uh, United Nations um, UNHCR, the Human United Nations uh, Human Rights Commissioner uh, for Refugees. Yes, that's it. They want uh, UNHCR to take over from UNRWA because UNRWA keeps people alive, whereas uh, the refugee agency only seeks to displace them over the world. They need to find places where we can put them, and that's exactly what the Israelis want for the Palestinians. They want someone to come along and take them away and put them somewhere else where they don't care. As long as it's somewhere else. And they want a United Nations agency that is able to dovetail nice and neatly and exactly with their genocidal intent to ethnically cleanse Gaza. And that's why they want the UNHCR in there. 
rather than UNRWA, because UNRWA keeps people alive. They don't want that. They want them moved, and that's what the refugee agency does. A uh, poll coming out in America shows that nearly two-thirds of Americans support a ceasefire, again underlining just how undemocratic American democracy is. Uh, there'll be more details on the talks in Moscow going forward. Uh, a growing rift between Israel and Russia. Uh, you'll recall my analysis of Russia's uh, submission uh, to the International Court of Justice on Israel's actions in occupied territories. Uh, I was rather disappointed. I thought they went in, uh, they really soft soaped Israel and said uh, that um, Russia and Israel are united in fighting terrorism and Nazism. And I thought, how can you be, how can you at this time when Israel is showing just who the inheritors of Hitler's legacy are? Who picked up that dirty soil baton that fell out of the lifeless fingers of Hitler in 1945? It would appear it was the Zionists. This is a Zionist Nazi genocide that is unfolding in Gaza. And it is undoubtedly the parallels between this and the, the, uh, the, the Warsaw Ghetto uprising that the Israelis like to make so much of. The parallels between them all are simply undeniable and compelling. And yet Russia came out at that time at the International Court of Justice. Maybe, maybe Russia was hoping for some kind of diplomatic advantage. It appears the diplomatic advantage was not forthcoming. And Israel is, uh, <clears throat> to say that its, it's nose is out of joint uh, would be um, a, a rather of an understatement uh, regarding their reactions to the talks in Israel. So there's a growing rift between these two countries. And uh, then we'll be having a look at uh, the latest hijinks by the Houthis in the Red Sea. Palestinian groups yesterday started a new round of national reconciliation talks in the Russian capital, Moscow, in the presence of Russian's Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. Uh, speaking to Anadolu agency, Basam al-Sali, the General Secretary of the Palestinian People's Party, said Lavrov started his speech at the meeting by stressing Russia's support for the right of the Palestinian people to establish their own independent state on the lands of 1967 with East Jerusalem as, it cap as its capital. He also cited Lavrov as confirming his country's continuous efforts to have a ceasefire in Gaza. According to the Palestinian senior leader, Lavrov considered the U.S. loan sponsorship of the Palestinian-Israeli peace process the reason for its failure, which led to the deterioration of the current situation. The state of political division has been taking place since 2007. The two entities ruling the Palestinians, one in the West Bank led by the Fatah movement and the other in Gaza led by Hamas. Over the past year, several Arab capitals hosted reconciliation talks, but all failed to bring an end to the ongoing political rift. On 16 February, Russia announced, uh, Russia announced hosting Palestinian groups to hold the, the inter-Palestinian talks. Uh, the talks in Moscow come amid an ongoing uh, uh, genocide in Gaza, which has so far claimed more than 30,000 lives. Now... You would understand, you would expect that people seeing uh, the horror and devastation that is being unleashed by this Nazi onslaught against Gaza, 
that ordinary people in the world would uh, immediately um, feel compassion and understanding for the suffering. And uh, th th that has been clearly seen in the size of the marches uh, that have taken a place, place in countries' capitals all around the world. But every time uh, there is a reaction, there's always kind of like a special reaction coming out of that little green blob in the sea next to Ireland, that, next to England that we call Ireland. And um, the Irish right now are very upset. They're very upset because Sinn Féin, which is the um, political arm of the Irish Republican Army, has agreed to send a representative to a dinner that is soon to be hosted uh, by um, Jim, uh, Joe Biden, the, the American president. As far as the Irish are concerned, that, that is a major sellout. And I thought reading, uh, reading to you an article on um, an Irish criticism of the uh, Sinn Féin going and sitting down to dinner with Genocide Joe just hasn't gone down well in the Emerald Island. So I thought I'd read this to you. And you can kind of like see and understand exactly like what is it that warms the Irish heart to the justice and the injustices that, that happen in Palestine. For 800 years, the Irish have fought a genocidal British occupation. Eight centuries of ethnic cleansing, land clearance, massacres, starvation, colonization, and a brutal military oppression. Successive generations of Irish men and women, boys and girls, have fought clandestinely and openly to liberate Ireland from the foreign imperialist control. Ireland was Britain's first conquest. The British Empire went on to occupy and even colonize approximately three-quarters of the world's landmass and citizenry. Australia, Canada, New Zealand, North America, South Africa, Egypt, India, China, to name just a few. The only difference between the British occupation of Ireland and the Zionist occupation of Palestine is one of time and scale. Ireland endured a British-imposed famine. The 1847 potato blight destroyed a large percentage of the harvest, leading to a shortage of basic food staple and a subsequent increase in prices. Ireland, having been invaded centuries before, was now a land of tenants ruled by absentee landlords. Sections of British aristocracy owned huge swathes of Irish land stolen through military occupation. The Irish were dispossessed from their homes and farms and forced to become almost indentured slaves, tilling the land and raising capital, cattle only for the profits of their labor to be extracted for the largesse of a foreign occupier who enacted laws to oppress the indigenous population while protecting the invader. Anyone who comes from India will say, you know, this is starting to sound very, very familiar. One law for the occupied, a separate law for the occupier. Two million died or emigrated. This is why there are Irish communities all over the globe. 54 million North Americans claim to be of Irish descent. The Irish people were deliberately starved. Hunger and famine were used as a weapon of war to end the Irish question at the heart of British politics. Those who resisted occupation were murdered, imprisoned or deported as felons to Australia, the Americas and the Caribbean. Massacres, land theft, colonization, famine, imprisonment, ethnic cleansing, these were the weapons of the oppressor. This is the fate of all people who live under occupation. This is Ireland's history.
a legacy of suffering before partial liberation. People in Ireland support people in Palestine, and that is a fact. There is a moral imperative on all people who are suffering or have suffered under foreign occupation or colonization to support each other. Ireland gained partial independence in 1922 when Britain withdrew from 26 of Ireland's 32 counties after a national war of liberation undertaken by the Irish people. This resulted in Irish civil war, where those opposed to partition were then attacked with British guns and British artillery being operated by other Irishmen. Imprisonment, torture and summary executions, once used as tactics of war by the oppressor, were then adopted by pro-partition Irishmen. Once fully embraced, these methods of repression were visited upon the true inheritors of the ideals of a fully independent sovereign Irish Republic, the anti-treaty, anti-partition Republicans. Does any of this sound familiar in Arabia? In 1969, a new generation of oppressed Irish people in the British-created state of Northern Ireland fought to reunify the country. After 30 years of struggle, a peace deal was agreed between the protagonists, the Irish Republican movement, and the British government, the Irish government, and the counter-revolutionary death squads armed and directed by British intelligence, along with their locally recruited mercenary forces. Throughout all those years of armed political resistance, the Irish Republican movement supported their comrades in Palestine, from the Fedayeen through the PLO to the PA. Now in Northern Ireland, history has been made, as for the first time in the country's history, an Irish Republican is now First Minister. A party that I've supported until a decade ago is now in government. Irish reunification is only a matter of time now. Sadly, the Irish Republican movement in the form of Sinn Féin is no longer a radical Republican party. It is a hollowed-out shadow of its former glory. Now, a nationalist constitutional party has embraced the British and Irish establishments, along with the trappings of power. Although still endorsed by many, it has abandoned its revolutionary roots and embraced neoliberalism. There's a growing chorus in Ireland demanding Irish politicians not to attend the traditional St. Patrick's Day celebrations at the White House on March 17. While Sinn Féin party members and elected representatives, North and South, attend and even organize or control some of these rallies calling for a ceasefire, they have publicly asserted their intention to go to Washington. While Sinn Féin and other corporate-endorsed Irish politicians down their shamrock alongside genocide Joe Biden while posing for selfies, Palestinians will be drowning in their own blood or suffocating slowly to death under the rubble. As the death toll rises under the bombardment of American imperialist bombs, always remember this treachery of Sinn Féin. It is not the, it is not the bombs of our enemies that hurt us the most, but the duplicity of our friends and the treachery of their deeds. And doesn't that last line just sound so true and sweet and bitter at the same time for us as Muslims? While the genocide talk, while the genocide is going on in Gaza, <clears throat> Joe Biden is still talking of normalization with Saudi Arabia. And it seems that that still remains a very real end goal for the Riyadh government. You would think they would have had a change of heart by now. But no, no. 
You can have babies' bodies splattered all over walls. And still, they will be going for reunification, it would seem. Humanitarian aid entering the Gaza Strip dropped by half this month, according to the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees. Uh, UNRWA, the United Nations uh, Relief and Welfare Agency, Commissioner General Felipe Lazzarini, uh, said in a post this week, February, February registered a 50% reduction of humanitarian aid entering Gaza compared to January. Aid was supposed to increase, not decrease, to address the huge needs of 2 million Palestinians in desperate living conditions, he added. Lazzarini blamed the lack of political will, regular closing of the crossing points, insecurity due to Israeli military operations, and the collapse of civil order for the aid reduction. He said a ceasefire, plus lifting the siege to allow meaningful life-saving aid and commercial supplies are long overdue. On average, nearly 98 aid trucks entered Gaza this month, UNRWA said in its latest situation report uh, on Monday. That's per day. The agency noted significant difficulties in bringing supplies through the Kerem Shalom and the Rafa crossings due to security constraints and temporary closures. UNRWA has at times had to temporarily stop discharging supplies due to security concerns. Security to manage the crossing has been severely impacted due to the killing of several Palestinian policemen in Israeli airstrikes near the crossings recently, it said. Also on Monday, UN Security General Antonio Guterres warned that an all-out Israeli offensive in Rafah in the southern Gaza Strip would not only be terrifying for more than a million Palestinian civilians sheltering there, it would put the final nail in the coffin of our aid programs. Rafah is the core of the humanitarian aid operation, and UNRWA is the backbone of that effort, Guterres told the Human Rights Council in Geneva. He said international law remains under attack and repeated his call for humanitarian ceasefire. I invoked Article 99 for the first time in my mandate with the greatest possible pressure on the Council to do everything in its power to end the bloodshed in Gaza and prevent escalation. But it was not enough, the Secretary-General stressed. That was about two and a half months ago now. Israel plans to carry out a grand invasion, a ground invasion in Rafah, where 1.4 million people have taken refuge, despite international warnings and calls to avoid such an attack. According to Gaza's Ministry of Health, over 30,000 Palestinians have been killed and 70,215 wounded in Israel's ongoing genocide in Gaza. Moreover, at least 7,000 people are unaccounted for, presumed dead, under the rubble of their homes throughout the Strip. Palestinian and international organizations say the majority of those killed and wounded are women and children. The Israeli aggression has also resulted in the forced displacement of nearly 2 million people from all over the Gaza Strip, with the vast majority of the displaced forced into the densely crowded southern city of Rafah, near the border with Egypt, in what has become Palestine's largest mass exodus since the 1948 Nakba. Tel Aviv says that 1,200 soldiers and civilians were killed during the Al-Aqsa flood operation on October 7. Most of them are by the Israeli army and air force. Israel is currently on trial before the International Court of Justice for genocide against Palestinians. Well, 
Uh, judging by the leaders or the people who call themselves the leaders of the United States, I suppose we should rather call them the rulers, um, the dictators, the tyrants of the United States, the congressmen and senators who walk through the walls are being confronted by protesters uh, um, opposing the genocide, and they say they must all die. They say things like that. Uh, and no matter how callous they are, you can clearly see that these are not people that would be leading a truly democratic country. Because if leaders were leading a truly democratic country and they were truly democratic, then they would reflect the views of their supporters. And they very clearly don't. Which just goes to show that the process that brought these people into power and positions of influence was very much anti-democratic, at the very least non-democratic, because they do not represent their people who voted for them at all, in any shape or form. A new poll, poll released uh, this week found that 67% of U.S. voters support a permanent ceasefire in Gaza, which the Biden administration has continuously rejected in, fa in favor of uh, continuing the genocide. The poll conducted by Data for Progress found that the number was even higher among Democratic voters, with 77% of them supporting a permanent ceasefire. Around two-thirds of voters, 67%, including majorities of Democrats with 77%, independents with 69%, and even Republicans with 56%. Yes, Donald Trump's supporters, more than half of them, want the, the, the genocide to end. They support the U.S. calling for a permanent ceasefire and a de-escalation of violence in Gaza. And while, the, while America keeps on talking peace and uh, ensuring that the genocide continues, on the other side of the world in Moscow, um, it seems Vladimir Putin's government has decided that this is a golden opportunity to snatch leadership in Arabia away from the United States. It would seem uh, that uh, Moscow has decided that this is definitely a cherry worth pursuing. Um, as I say, you know, it, it looks as though Russia doesn't really have a, a clear plan going forward here. One would have thought we'd have seen something more consistent coming out of Russia. Russia, from the very beginning, has been very tepid in its criticisms of Israel. <clears throat> Now, given the, given the pressures of the war in Ukraine and the need to put the United States on the back foot on the, in the international arena, one would have thought, I would have thought, I would have expected Russia to have made a lot more noise about the genocide and uh, the failure of American democracy and the failure of American leadership. But they've only started to do that over the last, I'd say, the last two weeks only. Um, I don't know how long uh, the talks that have taken place, that are taking place underway in Moscow right now. Right now. I, I don't know exactly when they were planned, um, but it, it would seem uh, that the willingness of the Palestinian leadership to attend 
Uh, and it, it seems as though the talks are already well developed. Somehow or other, they, they seem everyone is planning to come together under one banner, the, pa the Palestinian Liberation Organization. They're resuscitating the PLO as the party, as the organization that is going to be uh, the mobilizing force for Palestinians going forward. Uh, no real clear idea of what form or shape a Palestinian state is going to look like. Um, exactly how to get out of the present impasse of genocide and death. How are we going to get beyond this and start speaking about uh, future and growth and a sustainable state? Um, despite all, all, all of the conditions that, that one would think are... Uh, conducive only for estrangement between the parties. It seems that somehow or other this Israeli genocide has drawn them all together. Um, in some ways, uh, the, the, the petty political bickering, uh, the differences of the past, everyone seems to be willing to put it aside. Now look, I'm, I'm sitting in South Africa and, and I cannot tell uh, what the motivations are and um, what the intentions are of the people who are participating in the talks. Of course, I can't. Uh, but you can see things like this willingness of like Hamas and Fatah, uh, both to like, okay, we, we, we're going to get join together under the PLO banner. It's, it's almost as though the, the, the idea of the PLO belongs to everyone. It's not like Hamas uh, or Fatah has got a greater claim uh, to the PLO because uh, they, they grew out of the PLO, whereas Hamas grew up on its own. There doesn't seem to be anything like that. And everyone kind of like looks as though um, they're being quite pragmatic uh, in their approach. They want to get what they're calling a technocrat government up and running, a government that's going to do things like um, rebuild uh, the sewage pipes and uh, they're going to put in electricity and, and do all of those kind of things that municipalities do um, and, and, and get a proper functional state up and running out of the, out of the ruins uh, that are Gaza today. Um, according to stories coming out of Moscow today, Palestinian factions, some of which have been in conflict for nearly two decades, are convening in Moscow to explore the formation of a new government just days after the resignation of the Palestinian Authority government. Uh, it's very interesting that um, the, the dissolution of the Palestinian Authority, was it necessary to do that or, or is it tactical? You see, every time uh, the United States wants to um, uh, show that, you know, well, we're, we're, um, we're, we're, uh, we're uh, flexing our, um, our leadership muscles here and we're going to go and we're going to talk to all who's who in Arabia. So every time they go to Arabia, you know, it becomes very clear that they're talking to the Israelis, the genocidaires, the killers. And uh, some of the compliance spineless little friends like uh, Mohammed bin Salman and so on. Um, <clears throat> but then, it, it, you know, people back home say, yeah, but I mean, you know, aren't you supposed to be talking to Palestinians as well? And so they have to go and talk to some kind of Palestinian kind of presence. And, and that presence is usually in the form of the Palestinian Authority. 
Was it Russia's idea that you need to dissolve this Palestinian authority now first? Because that way, America's got no one to talk to. America goes, they can talk to Fatah, um, but it seems that Fatah has basically been taken away from Mahmoud Abbas. Mahmoud Abbas is basically a very much a very dead duck. Of course, the Americans wouldn't know that. Um, it's quite possible that um, uh, Joe Biden and um, Blinken, uh, Jonathan Blinken, will continue meeting uh, Abbas, even even if he's no longer the head of the PA or the um, or the or the uh, or Hamas. He's just an old uh, old granddad uh, in Ramallah. Uh, but Americans don't know that, and as long as he looks kind of Palestinian and, and smiles for the cameras, uh, it may be good enough. It may be good enough. But it seems to me, um, inadvertently or not, uh, Russia has scored here uh, in, uh, by the, the, the de facto dissolution of the Palestinian Authority with their resignation. Now, some people would say, yeah, but, you know, technically speaking, from a legal point of view, you know, um, in order for an incoming new organization to take over, the previous administration needs to vacate itself. And that's exactly what the Palestinian Authority has done. It's vacating itself in anticipation. It's a very, 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 very early vacation, I must say. You know, um, Either that or the talks in the, the reformation, uh, the, the rebirth of the PLO, are a lot more advanced than anyone has ever realized. Uh, because, you see, you would only dissolve the Palestinian Authority if you're fairly confident that the new revitalized PLO is going to take its place. Well, you could argue that the Palestinian Authority, in actual fact, hasn't any authority. That uh, ever since uh, the Israeli clampdown on the West Bank after Al-Aqsa flood, um, they, they have become functionless. Uh, they can't run their municipalities properly. They're all isolated, cut off. They're subject to uh, Israeli terror and settler terror every single day. Um, and basically, th that means that people are having to get by according to their own resources and recognizances rather than falling back on um, assistance and aid from the councils. Could it be that this is like, you know, just a, a recognition of the de facto facts on the ground? The Palestinian Authority, uh, by the settler violence uh, since October 7, the Palestinian Authority has de facto ceased to exist. So... Basically, by them resigning, they simply give an acknowledgement to, to something uh, that is already de facto uh, in operation, or not in operation, because it ceased operations. That's one way, two ways of looking at it. But uh, nevertheless, is uh, Jonathan Blinken going to have anyone to visit when he goes to Ramallah in the future? The primary aim of the two-day discussions in Moscow is to bring together the factions under the Palestinian Liberation Organization, a coalition that in 1993 signed a peace treaty with Israel. The goal is to establish a new government within the Palestinian Authority, as explained by Husseini Hamayel, a spokesman for the Fatah political party, in a statement to CNN on Wednesday. Despite not being part of the PLO and not recognizing Israel, Hamas, currently engaged in a conflict with Israel in Gaza, 
uh, is participating in talks, according to the Russian media. Khaled El-Gindi, a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute in Washington, D.C., emphasized the significance of incorporating factions like Hamas into the PLO for its reform and legitimacy. Fatah currently holds dominance in both the PLO and the PA, established in the Israeli-occupied West Bank following the 93 Oslo Accords. The previously convened uh, the, the PA... Well, well, let's just go... Wait, okay, we'll go into it. Sorry. The PA previously governed Gaza until 2007 when Hamas, winning the 2006 legislative elections, took control and expelled the PA from the Strip. Since then, Hamas has ruled Gaza while the PA governs parts of the West Bank. Uh, Well, that was because the PA was starting to crack down in accordance with uh, Israel's requests in in Gaza, and that resulted um, in uh, them being expelled from Gaza. And uh, also, it's a recognition of the de facto democratic truth, and that is that Hamas is the new government. PA Foreign Minister Riyad al-Malik al-Maliki expressed hope for support towards a technocratic government during the Moscow talks, but remained cautious about expecting miracles. He suggested that subsequent regional meetings might follow the Moscow discussions. Analysts believe that Hamas joining the PLO could be a significant step in unifying Palestinian factions and forming a consensus cabinet. The envisaged uh, technocratic government approved by all factions would not include members affiliated with any particular political group. While acknowledging the historical recognition of Israel by the PLO, analysts note that Hamas joining the bloc wouldn't automatically imply recognition by Hamas. The move could, however, impact future diplomatic processes between the PLO and Israel by influencing potential concessions. Now we know that Hamas in the past has expressed willingness to accept a Palestinian state within within territories captured by Israel in the 1967 war, but has ruled out recognizing Israel. Israel rejects the prospect of the PA returning to Gaza post-war, opposing the U.S. push for a reformed PA governing both territories. Khaled al-Gindi highlighted that the main challenges to Hamas joining the PLO lie in negotiating its power within the grouping and addressing the issues relating to its weapons and fighters. This process, he noted, poses significant difficulties as both dominant factions, Fatah and Hamas, would need to relinquish a measure of power for the sake of national unity. The talks also underscore Russia's efforts to assume a more prominent role in the conflict. Russia has offered mediation between Hamas and Israel shortly after the war commenced, emphasizing its connections with all regional stakeholders. Despite 16 of its citizens being killed on October 7 in the attack uh, by Hamas, the Al-Aqsa flood, Russia refrained from directly condemning the incident. This departure from its long-standing image as a peacemaker capable of engaging with all sides is considered a significant shift in public relations strategy. That's according to Anna Borshkevskia, an expert on Russia's Middle East policy at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Russia has faced criticism for maintaining ties with Hamas without designating it as a terrorist organization, unlike most Western nations. Well, that's well, obviously, um, you know, you can see that they're defending themselves on, uh, against an, an ongoing aggressive colonial power. 
And they're also the democratically elected government, something that the so-called democratic states in the West uh, have completely forgotten, or they have not forgotten, they completely ignore. Over the years, Russia has invited high-level Hamas delegations to Moscow for meetings with top officials, while also exerting pressure on the group to alter its behavior. By hosting these talks, Russia appears to be vying for control of the narrative in a conflict where Western rivals also have a stake, according to Borskevskia. She suggested that Russia is engaging in dialogue not just for its intrinsic value, but as part of a broader battle for global narratives. Borshevskaya believes that Russian President Vladimir Putin is contributing to regional chaos with the aim of weakening the Western pro-Western forces. She asserts that Russia is gaining an advantage both on the military battle space and in the narrative realm against Western powers. Khaled al-Gindi points out that Russia's involvement in the conflict serves as a means to project power and expand influence in the Middle East at the expense of the United States. He notes that Russia's unique position allows it to engage with all Palestinian factions, including Hamas, a diplomatic avenue that the U.S. and many Arab states are less inclined to pursue. Well, all of this has not gone down well in Tel Aviv. In fact, you could say they live it in Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv is livid. Uh, Israel's envoy to the U.N., uh, this week attacked Russia over the Ukraine conflict and its diplomatic contacts with Hamas. Russia has sided with the enemies of the free world. Israel believes it's part of the free world. Can you believe it? I suppose a free lunch. Israel is, uh, is a, most definitely a member of the free lunch world. I mean, check out all those billions it gets out of America every year. Israel has been living in the land of free lunch since 1947. But, according to Tel Aviv this week, Russia has sided with enemies of the free world that seek global in- instability. Yes, Israel, um, without any provocation, it's bombing Syria, it's bombing Lebanon, it bombs any, any, any neighbor that it pleases other than Saudi Arabia and Jordan. And, uh, and it says that um, <laughs> uh, other countries are seeking global instability. Ah, uh, boy. Uh, they, they, the, in Israel claims Russia has weaponized the UN against Israel. Uh, sorry, genocide. I'm sorry, Israel. Genocide has weaponized the UN against Israel. The country's permanent representative to the global organization has claimed. Uh, Moscow has dismissed Gilad Erdogan's accusations as delirium. So it would seem as though the gauntlets have been tossed down. Russia tried to soft-soap Israel, obviously hoping for some kind of um, diplomatic win. Of course, if there's anyone who's going to be able to diplomatically persuade or influence the United States regarding the war in Ukraine, it would be Israel. It may be that Russia was hoping for some kind of diplomatic pressure point being relieved as a result of giving Israel an easy go at the ICJ, but... uh, that's clearly not working, and clearly Israel is siding with the uh, Ukrainians. You see um, uh, uh, Jewish worshippers at the Wailing Wall are wearing Palestinian flags while banging their head against the stone. Uh, yes, so according to Israel, uh, Russia has uh, sided with enemies of the free world that seek global instability. They, weapon, they weaponize the UN against Israel. 
Uh, Erdogan also tossed multiple accusations at Moscow in a speech to the UN General Assembly in New York. It marked the two-year anniversary of open Ukrainian-Russian hostilities. Erdogan effectively equated Russia with Hamas and criticized Moscow for having contacts with the Palestinian military group. Both our countries, Israel and Ukraine, are fighting a battle for our survival. We are now living in an era during which forces of instability act with impunity. International law be damned, morality be damned, and peace and security be damned, uh, said Erdogan, uh, Israel's ambassador to the UN who is very undiplomatic, may I say. Israel's military campaign in Gaza was launched in retaliation to Al-Aqsa flood. It has been criticized for causing disproportionate harm to civilians, and it has been called to be plausibly um, uh, committing genocide. Um, Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva uh, endorsed the allegation earlier this month that it is um, that it is committing genocide in Gaza, and that has caused a diplomatic rift with Israel. The EU's foreign policy chief, Joseph Borrell, has repeatedly criticized Israel's handling of the conflict, arguing that it undermines the West's credibility as a champion of human rights. Even U.S. President Joe Biden has voiced concerns, even as he endorses Israel's right to defend itself. Erdogan used his speech at the UN to attack the international organization for supposedly serving as a weapon against freedom and liberty, the freedom of, uh, of Zionists to kill uh, anyone and uh, to leave them at liberty for the rest of their lives without any sanctions. The Security Council, uh, said, um, said Erdogan, is paralyzed in the face of violence and the entire UN system is being held hostage by political interests. Since October, the U.S. has repeatedly used its veto power at the international body to block draft resolutions calling for a ceasefire. But the Israeli ambassador was apparently referring to the U.N. Security Council's failure to designate Hamas a terrorist organization rather than Washington's stalwart defense of its allies from international pressure. He also accused Russia of moving closer to the global forces of destabilization and regimes in Iran, Syria, North Korea, and Venezuela. These countries are now standing in solidarity as the free world stands on the sidelines divided, he claimed. Meanwhile, Ukraine and Israel are the canaries in the coal mine, he said. Moscow has condemned violence against civilians by both Hamas and Israel. It has accused Israel of stonewalling the UN-endorsed plan to create a Palestinian national state, which Russia perceives as, the, as at the core of the conflict. Russian Deputy Envoy to the UN, Dmitry Polyansky, commenting on Erdogan's speech on X, wrote, Delirium continues. A week ago, we heard from Israeli representative that United Nations is Hamas. Today, Russia is Hamas. Uh, Ukraine and Israel are definitely fighting the same battle against humanity and international humanitarian law, he said. Well, <clears throat> those are the big players on the, on the international global arena. There's still a very small, small player punching way above its weight. Yes, the Houthis of Yemen. Uh, Yemen's Houthis said this week they would only reconsider them, their missile and drone attacks on international shipping in the Red Sea once Israel ends its aggression in the Gaza Strip. 
This comes as um, as uh, commanding officers in the international fleet in the Red Sea there that's supposed to be stopping the attacks on international shipping say they're wasting their time. Uh, they, they, they don't know what they're supposed to be bombing in Yemen. They'll send, they'll send the aircraft over there, go bomb some things, but they, they know. Basically, they're, dro- they're dropping bombs on stones uh, for no real clear purpose whatsoever. Now, you know, this is as Joe Biden says, Oh, well, you know, we got to try and get a, a clear exit plan from the Israelis. Uh, but what, uh, what kind of ex- even entry plan? What kind of plan? Any kind of plan? There doesn't seem to be any kind of plan for these ships that are there in the middle of the Red Sea. How long is it going to be before one of them is suddenly hit by a missile? Uh, we've had missiles dropping into the Red Sea, fired by the Houthis. Um, it would seem as though they're not guided missiles; they're dumb missiles. Uh, and uh, I think the closest that one has dropped to a ship is about a, a kilometer, three kilometers. Uh, but, in, but nevertheless, uh, they, they make up for their lack of accuracy with a definite enthusiasm and sincerity. Uh, so they said this week they would only reconsider the, their missile attacks on shipping in the Red Sea once Israel ends the aggression in the Gaza Strip. Asked if they would halt the attacks if a ceasefire deal is reached, Houthi spokesperson Mohammed Abdul Salam told Reuters the situation would be reassessed if the seas, if the siege on Gaza ended and humanitarian aid was free to enter. There will be no halts to any operations that help Palestinian people except when the Israeli aggression on Gaza and the siege stop, he said. Or perhaps I should I should read that in the in the way he read. <laughs> Uh, I love the way he he reads his press statements with the international television cameras, you know. He stands there at at attention behind the lectern with both arms stretched out straight in front of him. And he just shouts whatever it is that he has to tell. He's going to tell everyone exactly what needs to be said. And he does it at full voice and he doesn't stop. So maybe what he said was, there will be no hold to any operation that help Palestinian people except when the Israeli aggression on Gaza and the sea stop. I think that's how that's <laughs> uh, When you go and interview him, you see, uh, you sit down in one room and he sits down in another room. And then you have to shout your questions through the door because that's the only way you can stop yourself from uh, suffering uh, ear, eardrum damage. Um, <clears throat> Well, I suppose here yeah, he's very enthusiastic about his job. It's nice to see a public relations officer that really believes in the message that he's um, um, sharing with the world. Um, there were new reports this week of another suspected attack. A Marshall Islands flagged Greek-owned bulk carry on Tuesday reported that a missile hit the water three nautical miles from the ship which was located 63 nautical miles northwest of Hudaydah, Yemen. Um, the United Nations Maritime Trade Operations also sent an alert on the incident, adding that the crew and vessel were reported safe and proceeding to the next port of call. There was a Panama-flagged UAE-owned chemical products tanker approximately two nautical miles away at the time the missile was sighted, Ambry said. In what appeared to be a related event, the Houthis al-Masira television said late Tuesday that the U.S. and U.K. together launched two airstrikes over Hudaydah, that's Yemen's oldest port city. 
Shipping risks have escalated due, due to repeated Houthi strikes in the Red Sea and Bab al-Mandab Strait since November in what they describe as acts of solidarity with Palestinians against Israel in the Gaza war. Uh, top global container line Maersk on Tuesday advised clients to prepare for disruptions in the Red Sea to last into the second half of the year and to build longer transit times into their supply chain planning. In other words, you're going to burn sail around the Cape. I wonder how Simonstown is doing out of all of this. Um, <clears throat> the disruptions are going to last as long as the Gaza operations last, they said. It's impossible to stop the Houthis from launching the drones. It's not like deploying a Patriot missile battery in the Ukraine. These drones are extreme cheap and can be launched from anywhere. As Biden admitted early into the bombing campaign, attacking Yemen cannot stop the drones. So the U.S. bombings of the country are intended to send a message that the U.S. <laughs> That the U.S. doesn't like what they're doing. They could have just sent a message, you know. <laughs> Everyone knows the U.S. doesn't like what they're doing. The real world effect of that is to harden the resolve of the Palestinian people and to rally them around the Houthis. The U.S. frequently does these things that help their enemies. And with that, we've come to the end of the show. Well... Well, there you go. That's another week done. My, how time flies. Jazakumallah for joining us. Inshallah, I'll be back again on Monday uh, between uh, 12 and 1. Uh, no current affairs show on a Monday night. Uh, current affairs will be back Tuesday nights, 8 to 9. Remember to catch me then. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.